This morning we'll be in, starting in Genesis chapter 3, but I need to give you a couple warnings before we get too far into the passage, and the first one is that, as you can probably hear in my voice, I'm still recovering from a cold, um, so if I break into a coughing fit, you'll have to forgive me, we'll just pause the service and take up a love offering for cough drops and peppermints. No, all joking aside, I appreciate you bearing with me in that. But the other thing is that this is probably not necessarily a normal sermon, at least by what we're used to hearing. As I began to study the text, it became apparent that there's so much in this one chapter of the Bible as this is the splinter point. This is where everything breaks and fractures, that this really sets the tone for the entire Bible. And so what we're looking at today is nothing short of a sermon on the entire Bible. I appreciate your prayers as we attempt to do this in a timely fashion. And so with that, let's go ahead and go before the Lord in prayer. O great God of heaven, we are here to worship you. You are worthy of worship. You are worthy of our praise. And we come to you, Lord, in love. We ask for your help this morning as we open your word. We look for the revelation of Jesus Christ on every page of scripture. We see, Lord, what is going on in the world today that we live in. It's nothing new. It's been operating this way since the fall. But you've given us a great promise, a promise of redemption through the seed of the woman. He gives us the right to become children of God. He gives us the right to partake of the tree of life. And so, Lord, I ask you that you would be gracious to me and allow me to just be your mouthpiece, that I would be hidden behind the cross, and that you would deliver a better sermon than the one that I have prepared. We love you, God. We look forward to what you're doing. We ask you to meet with us now. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Well, if you've turned on the news within the last couple of weeks, you're probably aware that tragedy never goes out of style. In fact, there was a, a tragic incident just last week with several dead and a few more wounded in Buffalo, New York, and these events are not uncommon in the day that we live in. Additionally, we live in a world that's full of murder, theft, adultery, pandemics, tornadoes, earthquakes, and hurricanes, all of which have the potential to devastate entire families, towns, and cities. It doesn't take very long of us looking around to understand that there is something incredibly wrong with the world that we live in. And so this morning we want to ask the question, really two questions, in order to understand what's going on in the world around us, what happened and what's going to happen. And so I want to give you, as we examine more closely the bookends of Scripture, primarily staying anchored in this passage in Genesis, but expanding throughout the entire Bible, I want to give you four headings. They're catastrophe, consequence, covering, and consummation. Catastrophe, consequence, covering, and consummation. And so the Bible begins then with this story of creation. God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he did it in six literal days. We don't need to dispute that point. That's what the Bible says. That's what we believe. On the sixth day, he created his masterpiece with the express purpose of bearing his image in all of creation. This is what the word says in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That word dominion is an important one. It's Adam's job description. So Adam, the man, is a cultivator who is placed in the garden, and he is charged with ruling over the whole earth on God's behalf. He's a representative. Well, we see in verse 29 then that God gave the man and the woman every good thing, every good plant to consume, not just to consume, but to enjoy. 
There is no lack in this perfect earth that has been newly created. We get to chapter 2 then and we see a change in section. The word generation is important through the book of Genesis. It gives us anchor points where we can kind of divide things into sections. Genesis chapter 2, we see a new section which is a retelling of the same events that just happened. These are historical events. They're not in conflict with each other. They're in harmony. But there's a different emphasis here. And in this retelling of the same historical events, we see the man placed in the garden with two trees. The first one mentioned is the tree of life, and the second one is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God gives the man this command in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, You shall surely die. More literally, the text says, You shall die, die, because there's no superlative in the Hebrew. So, to emphasize concepts, you repeat words. But this also has a wonderful double meaning, doesn't it? Because, as we're going to see in a few minutes, there are two ways in which Adam did die when his wife gave him the fruit. And they both partook of it and rebelled against God. At this point, everything in the scripture is good. Everything on earth has been created good, except for one thing. What's that? The man is alone. And so God takes Adam's rib and he gives him a wife. After saying that it is not good that man should be alone, he needs a helper. And that is the context in which we find ourselves this morning. We'll start reading in 2.25 and read through the end of chapter 3. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve because she was mother of all the living. 
And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. (coughs) And he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May God bless the reading of his word. So nakedness creates bookends to this first section. And usually you'll see this text divided uh, around these bookends. But I think it behooves us this morning to look at it in its entirety. You have to understand that there's no shame. The man and his wife are in a state of pure bliss. They're together, they're happy, and they're in perfect communion with God. Everything in the garden, except for that one tree, was theirs for the taking, not just to use, but also to enjoy. In fact, in 126, we see that their job then is to cultivate flourishing through ruling on behalf of God. And so there's no pain, there's no disease, and there's no shame. The world was created good, and the best of it belonged to Adam and Eve. The second time we see the man and woman naked in the text, it's under a different set of circumstances. And so here then we notice that there's a little bit of wordplay going on. Now, for those of you that really enjoy Old Testament studies, you know that one of the most important tools that you can put in your toolbox for interpreting Old Testament narrative is to look for puns. The Hebrews were excellent punsters. And this is no exception. It, It helps us to understand what the emphasis is what the intention of the human author as he's guided along by the Holy Spirit is so that we can glean from the text what we're supposed to. It's a guide. And we see one of these puns here with the word naked and crafty, believe it or not. It reads this way, the man and his wife were both Aram. Now the serpent was more Arum than any other beast. This word is the same word at its root, although it's slightly different to communicate the different meanings, but is translated as naked, as wise, as prudent, and in a negative sense is translated as crafty or cunning, depending on which translation of the scriptures you use. And so we might be able to communicate it this way. The humans were smooth compared to the other animals, the animals that they were ruling over, because animals are not created in the image of God, only humans are. But by contrast, they're smooth. Well, the serpent, he also was smooth, just in a different connotation. And so this is a real snake, and it's true that in ancient literature, the snake was often used to represent evil. But in the text... The Bible, the inspired word of God, it puts the snake into the category of being in the animal kingdom. So again, we don't have to doubt what's really going on here. These are true, factual, historical events where it says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, right? So the Bible's putting the serpent into that category, Well, I don't know if you've ever run across a talking snake, but I have not. That seems a little bit strange to me, doesn't it, to you? That's probably a sign that something is about to take place that should get our attention. And so we see then the serpent was created. He's not God's equal. He's created and he, the other important truth that we understand from that is that God did not create sin. So what you have then is the serpent that we know as the devil. <clears throat> he views himself as being a better God than God, right? He has his eyes on God's throne, and he's going to use the man and the woman to accomplish his agenda. 
Well, that's a pretty serious manifestation of pride, I would say. But we need to recognize that Satan continues to be under God's sovereign rule and authority. And I think of the example of Job, right? As the serpent is wandering about creation, prowling around looking for his next victim, and he goes before God's throne, and God says, Where have you been, Satan? Or the accuser, if you like. And Satan says, I've just been wandering around on the earth. And and, uh, God says, Well, how about my servant Job? Have you ever thought about him? And Satan says, No, no, no. It wouldn't be worth my time because you always put a hedge of protection around him. So God says in Job 1.12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Do you see what's happening there? That Satan as a created being is being restrained by God the Creator. And so we have to understand then that these questions as the serpent is tempting the man and the woman, and they're there together. The you in the first five verses of chapter 3 is plural, so Satan's talking to the man and the woman. These questions of temptation do not come from God. In fact, it's very important that as we're looking for truths about God in these kinds of passages, we recognize God is not the author of temptation. So what are the sources of temptation? Well, I invite you to turn to James chapter 1, verse 13 and 17. Verse 13 through 17, excuse me. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, God is eternally good. He cannot change. It's against his nature. We call this immutability. And therefore, the sources of temptation come from our own fleshly desires. The temptation that the serpent was offering to the man and the woman comes from their own fleshly desires. Additionally, we see in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So then we understand that the two sources of temptation are our own fleshly desire and also spiritual evil. And in the case of Genesis 3, we see these two things working together in an act of outright rebellion against God. And so we ask the question then, how did sin happen? How did sin happen? Well, notice there's a process here, and it begins with questioning the clarity of the Word of God. And then the serpent begins to challenge the authority of the Word of God until he outright contradicts the Word of God. Right? And it's helpful to understand that this command that's been given to the man and the woman is a command that has come from the mouth of the Lord Himself. This is divine special revelation. So this is an attack on the authority and the sufficiency of the Word of God. And so as he questions the the clarity and challenges the authority and then contradicts the Word of God, we see Eve responding, and in this way they're working together to walk down this nasty road of temptation. Did God really say is how the serpent begins? Well, at that point... Obviously, Eve should have just shut down the conversation. But what does she do? No, instead, she enters into a dialogue, and she actually mishandles the Word of God. And this is really subtle. Most people don't catch it. But what's the command given in Genesis chapter 2? Don't eat of the tree. What does Eve do? She adds to the Word of God. She says, don't touch it as well. 
And so it's in the moment then when the woman starts mishandling the word of God that Satan knows that she's in his snare and he begins to close the net and set the trap. That's when she's vulnerable to doubting the authority of God himself. And then Satan says, you don't have to listen to him. Well, are there not principles here? as we consider the way that Satan is framing God to be a liar and causing people to doubt the authority and sufficiency of his word, not only answering the question, how did sin happen then, but how does sin happen today? This is extremely applicable for us in our Christian life as we battle against temptation from the flesh and the the spiritual evil that surrounds us on every side. I hope you notice that the woman is practically walking through 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. What does 1 John 2.16 say, you ask? Good question. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And so she says, the tree is good for food. Well, that's the lust of the flesh, right? It satisfies hunger. It's a delight to the eyes. It's beautiful. It's the lust of the eyes. And then it's desirable to make one wise. Well, wiser than whom? Right? That's a fair question to ask. Wiser than the one who gave you the command that told you not to partake of the fruit of the tree. And so we have the pride of life. And keep in mind that Moses is writing these things to the nation of Israel, right? There's a very practical reason why he put this in here. This is the nation of Israel who's famous for complaining, right? And their spiritual adultery and spending generation after generation after generation in bondage because they just won't serve the Lord. Are we not the same? Do we not need to pay attention to this the same way that the nation of Israel should have? This is what is at the root of your sin. If you want to conquer your sin, this is what you need to know. And so as people, we tend to spend most of our time consumed by lust, whether it be lust for money, sex, or power and the rest of the time filled with pride, right? And I'll give you an example of this. If I ask the question, if I were running the universe, I would... How quickly did you answer that in your mind? Does it not imply that it's in our nature then to think that God is not doing his job properly? Is that not pride? And so we spend our lives chasing these fleeting pleasures, building barns to store up riches and whatever other kinds of gobbledygook that is going to satisfy the desires of the flesh for this time being, and then we die and we can't take any of it with us. But Satan would ask us questions like, well, God wants you to be happy, doesn't he? Can't you have nice things? Is there any prohibition in the Bible about having... Nice things. After all, you do work hard for that paycheck. You should spend a little of it on yourself. We do the same thing that Eve did time and again, where at that point we open the door to dialoguing with the devil, and when you open the door to dialoguing with the devil, you are in dangerous waters. In fact, I would ask the question, How did Jesus respond when he was tempted in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4? He said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Be gone, Satan. James tells us, resist the devil and he will flee. And so it is that when we come under the power of temptation, we have to recognize that we are at war. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul gives the imagery of armor in Ephesians chapter 6. It's a fight to the death to kill your sin, because if you don't kill your sin, it will be killing you.
When you're aware that you're being tempted, you need to shut it down because if you don't, then it gets to the point where Satan whispers the lie in your ear that makes you believe that God is a liar, openly contradicting the word. And it might sound something like this. And perhaps it's not just your internal desires, but perhaps it's the culture around us that would have us to believe a lie. That happens a lot, doesn't it? So Satan would ask something like, yes, of course, the Bible says that homosexual desire and action is wrong. But God just doesn't love you for who you are. Of course, the Bible says you shall not murder, but it's just a really bad time to have a baby right now. Of course, the Bible warns about loving the world, but if God really cared about you, he'd let you have everything that you ever wanted. Of course, we know from Matthew chapter 5 that looking at a woman with lustful intent is nothing short of committing adultery with her in your heart. But what's the, what's the problem? It's just a look. Is it really that dangerous? At which point we should all be saying, yes. So we need to understand then that, that as Eve gave in to temptation with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, as Satan is coming at her, assaulting the sufficiency and the authority of the word of God, what happened was not just a harmless snack, but it was a complete and utter rejection of God's lordship over his creation. Amen. Satan wins. He gets the woman and her husband to eat. They walked with God. They enjoyed every perfect thing he created. They had perfect, unadulterated communion with God as he walked through the garden every single evening. And they gave it up for a piece of fruit. This is cosmic treason. The woman was deceived and the man didn't stop her. So this is the choice then that's before us when we're wrestling with temptation. Are we going to choose the personal communion with the eternal, unchanging, all-powerful, life-giving, eternally good, perfectly wise, ever-present God who loved them and us and created us, or are we going to choose a piece of fruit? It's gone in just a few minutes. It doesn't even sustain you for a whole day. But that's temptation. That's the temptation that we all face. Adam and Eve chose the fruit, and then we see their innocence is gone, and the world would never be the same. Number two, consequence. The consequences of sin are always worse than we could ever imagine. The consequences of sin are always worse than we could ever imagine. Immediately in the garden, we see spiritual death and separation from God, as well as hereditary shame that would be passed on from generation to generation. The man and the woman hear God walking in the garden. This should be a comfort to them. This is a regular occurrence. The tense indicates that it's habitual Action They share in this communion with God as the evening breeze sets in an hour before sunset every evening. And instead of this being a joyous sound, it becomes a dreadful sound. And you can just imagine the man looking at his wife, quick, quick, hide, here he comes. As they're sloppily knitting together these fig leaves to try to cover themselves because they're ashamed. hope you understand that Adam should not even know the word naked at this point. Should not be a part of his vocabulary. Well, it begs the question, then can the man and the woman hide from God? And the answer is no. God is omnipresent and he's omniscient. He's never not been there wherever there is. And I hope this is a lesson to us when we face temptation as well, because God is with us the same way that he was present when Adam and Eve were before Satan. So they're ashamed, right? And they know that they can't outrun God. They know that God knows what they've done, but they hide from him anyway. Why? Because they want to avoid the consequences. And as I was 
meditating on this part of the passage, this illustration kept coming to mind of my dog, Buckshot. (laughs) Whenever you cannot find Buckshot, you need to start looking for evidence of destruction. (laughs) Sometimes he's under the bed, sometimes he's under my desk, but if he cannot be found there's a good chance that he's done something wrong, and he knows it. He can't clean it up himself. We tried to teach him, it didn't work. And finally, we find the evidence, and we call his name Buckshot, and then his head will pop out around the corner, and he lowers it towards the ground, and he comes slinking down the hallway. And then he'll come right up in front of you and he'll sit down with his head still pointed down and he will not look you in the eye. He's under conviction. We're praying for his salvation. (laughs) Is this not exactly what the man and the woman are doing though? You've seen it in your children, by the way. They do the same thing. They know that a timeout is coming. But if only we could think clearly about temptation, we would see the physical and spiritual consequences of giving in. And perhaps then it would cause us to run the other way before we step in a hole, before we grieve the Holy Spirit, before we wreck our lives. Perhaps we would refuse to pick up the phone or get in the car or even to click on that button. Well, the next thing we see then is this parent-child dynamic as God begins the questions, right? They've been found out. Who told you you were naked? And so we, we see God in communion with Adam and Eve now, but the dynamic has changed. We see a, a parent-child dynamic. God knows the answers to these questions, but he's asking them anyway. Why? Well, you parents do the same things to your kids. When you know they've done something wrong, you ask them questions in order to draw it out of them what they've done. And it's not for your benefit. It's a tool for teaching them, right? You need to help them understand why their conscience is guilty. That's exactly what's going on here. And so God is asking them questions as if they were a small child. He knew the answers, but it was time for them to fess up. Well, how do they respond? Do they give a, a full-hearted confession and offer sincere repentance from sin right there and then? No. No, rather they start playing the blame game. I'm glad that none of us do this. Well, God starts with the man and then the man says, "Ah, it's it it, it, it was her. She did it." God turns to the woman and she says, ah, but the the snake, he came to me, so really it's his fault. You've seen your kids do this. They're just as fallen as you are. And so we see then the first step in reconciling with God is to be honest about your sin. And this is another way that Adam and Eve went wrong right here. What they're doing now just isn't helping their cause Right? They would say, yeah, sure, I did it, but then you know, if you only knew this other thing that was going on over here, the reason why my situation is unique and not really under the guidance of the rules here, maybe you'd understand. Have you come to grips with the fact that your sin is your fault and that God is going to hold you accountable for the ways in which you have sinned against him? except for the grace of God. Satan tempted them, but all three of them were held accountable. And we have to understand that there is a judgment coming. Romans 14, 10 through 12 warns us that for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us, that means you and me, friends, will give an account of God of himself to God. Jesus says that even our careless words will be judged by God. Are you ready? Are you ready? There's coming a day very soon when we will all 
pass from this life and each and every single one of us will stand before God to give an account and the only hope that we have in that moment is to plead the blood of Jesus Christ. But reconciling with the judge requires humble confession and ownership of our sin. So we see then that now the world is broken and God is getting ready to deal out sentencing. And as I mentioned earlier, the ancient Hebrews were masters of arranging words and puns and things of this nature. Well, here is another example where this helps us see clearly what's the focus of the passage. And so we see God as judge speaking to his creation and he starts with the man and then he turns to the woman and asks her the question and then he turns and questions the serpent. And then what do we see as he's dealing out the punishment? He starts with the serpent, then he moves to the woman, then he moves to the man. This is a structure known as chiasm. The Old Testament is chalked full of these kinds of structures, and they're intentional. What it does is it elevates the thing that's in the center up to be the focus. And so as God is dealing out this sentencing He wants us to see that the punishment of the serpent is first and foremost in his mind. Well, let's let's work through them quickly, man, woman, and serpent. The focus is on the the serpent's judgment, and and I already mentioned that, so we'll, we'll move on. Why does God call on the man first? Well, we mentioned that it was the man's responsibility to rule, right? And he did not intervene. And so his passivity was his sin. But we need to understand there's an important theological concept here that is as old as the Christian church. <clears throat> that is the doctrine of original sin. In other words, Adam was, as our governing representative, was our federal head. And I think of, of our own country as a, a federal constitutional Republic, right, where we elect people to make decisions on our behalf with our interests in mind. And Vodibachum used the example when they declare war, that means that I am at war. Even though I've not declared war, I'm still at war because my representatives have made the decision to go to war. This is exactly what happens. Adam was given the charge to rule over creation, to exercise dominion as God's representative to the rest of creation, and he surrendered his rule and authority over to Satan. And so turn with me then really quickly to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. And I put a couple of notes up on the, the slides so that maybe you'll understand there's a rhythm here. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because one man's trespass, death reigned that through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Adam sinned, it broke the world, and it broke all of us. That's what we need to understand from that. 
And so because Adam was guilty, we are guilty. And that raises the question for our evangelism, how many sins do you have to commit to deserve hell? Zero. Adam sinned, and you bear the full weight of Adam's guilt, and then you heap up on top of that with your own sins. Okay, that is the situation that Christ comes to redeem us from. We need clarity on this, because so many times in our day, evangelism is presented as emotional fulfillment. That's not what it's about. Of course, coming to know Christ should bring peace to our life. Of course, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. But the point is that he has dealt the crushing blow to the serpent, crushing the power of sin, death, and the grave. He was the second Adam, and he came to bring reconciliation to God. Well, next we see man's punishment. As Adam surrendered his dominion to Satan... He is to live in an undominated world. The crime fits the punishment, in other words. Now, surviving would become intense labor. They would have to look for food. They would have to deal with dehydration, which increases the heart rate. Even walking across a field can become laborious in this situation. It's as if they would be stranded on a desert island instead instead of in the middle of God's garden. Oh, and one more fact, now creation is full of carnivores that want to kill you. Well, in Romans eight nineteen through 24, what do we see except a world that is broken, full of futility because of Adam, right? Even our bodies are groaning for redemption. This is the root that is behind violence and hatred and sickness and poverty, birth depre- defects, oppressive governments, and even natural disasters, Do you see that creation is screaming out? It's not supposed to be this way. And finally, we see physical death as the man returns to the dust from which he comes. Next, we have the woman's punishment. She was created to be his helper before the fall. She was created to be his helper and companion, to aid in the mandate to be fruitful and multiply and to take dominion over the earth. In other words, she's to help her husband in his mandate to rule on behalf of God. And just like Adam's role was subjected to futility, so was the woman's. Her punishment equally fits the crime for the treason of surrendering Adam's rule And the result is that her dominion is subjected to utter pain and futility, the same way that Adam's is. She's given a job to help supply farmhands, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Seems pretty straightforward. And yet, that in and of itself would become the most excruciating task that we human beings know. But she's also to support him and to to help him in wherever he needs help as he's exercising dominion. And yet, what happens? Now there's tension in their relationship, their marriage, which was created good, so good, in fact, that it caused Adam to sing with joy, is now being subjected to futility. In Genesis 4, 7, God is talking to Cain, giving him a warning, saying, Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And this is the exact same phrase in, Hebrews, in Hebrew that we find as God is giving the woman punishment. Well, this makes Ephesians 5 make sense then, doesn't it? Perhaps husbands loving their wives and wives submitting to and respecting their husband is not just about their love languages, but it's actually the specific struggles that they deal with, that all of us deal with as a result of the fall. Next, we see the serpent's punishment, and this is the crux of the chiasm. God is going to put enmity between the serpent and the woman's offspring. This word enmity means that they're going to try to kill each other repeatedly. It's this kind of violent hatred. This is not a story explaining why people hate snakes. just want to make that clear. Right? The woman's offspring, 
plural, are going to have enmity against the serpent. But then we notice this change of case where now we see he in the singular, the the singular offspring of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. Right? And this should bring to mind the images of Christ as he's laid out on the cross. Arms spread open wide, ankles crossed, and the Romans are driving the spikes into his ankles. Ow! Ow! Serpent striking his heel. Imagine the anticipation that Satan had, thinking that he had defeated the offspring of the woman once and for all. But do you see how Jesus was spat on? He was beaten. His flesh was ripped from his body using the cat of nine tails. He had a crown of thorns put on top of his head that would pierce his skull. And when the blood began to clot, they would put a purple robe on him to mock him and then rip it off to make the bleeding start again. After carrying his cross up that hill, he was there suspended in the air, naked and ashamed as the second Adam, gasping for breath as he bore the wrath of God. And then he cried out with his last breath, It is finished! What? The war. And then he gave up his spirit. They removed his body and he laid there in the tomb for three days. And then something happened on that first Lord's Day morning, the day we call Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. The Lord's heart began to beat again and his lungs filled with air and his eyes opened to the newness of life after he had successfully dealt the crushing blow to the serpent. He's alive and the grave could not hold him. Do you believe? Yes. Do you believe? Jesus is our only hope. No one can come to the Father without him. But he says, come, all who are all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take this yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You understand how Satan's own weapon was used against him there on the cross? That's what Colossians 2 tells us, that he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, that he set this aside, nailing it to the cross, and then he disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. That is spiritual victory over the forces of evil. Number three, covering. We're moving quickly because I know we're short on time. Man and woman deserved execution, but God gave them a promise. And they believed God's promise and exchanged their fig leaves for a covering. But I want to point out that there was death in the garden that day. God killed an animal in order to provide a proper covering for Adam and Eve's sin and shame. You see, this is the foundation of the sacrificial system that was fulfilled by Jesus. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we see the first sacrifice, and the result is that Adam and Eve's sins are covered. And yet so many of us today would sew fig leaves together in order to hide our sin and our shame over the things that we've done and the things that have been done to us. But Christ bore our shame on the cross, naked as the second Adam. Don't let that be lost on you. Only Christ is our covering. Okay, and so we, we will do these works, right? It's, that's the nature that we all have is to be a legalist. We want to work. We want to cover our own sins. But you can't. There's no scale in heaven's courtroom. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That means there's no baptism. There's no Lord's Supper or any other 
element of the, the sacramental system of Rome that can atone for sin or wash away original sin. There's no charity or evangelism that can make up for your rebellion. There's no abstinence from alcohol and movies and playing cards that can save you. What you need is the covering of Christ's righteousness. And it's interesting that all throughout Scripture, righteousness is presented as a robe. There's a powerful illustration of that in Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it, but I hope you'll go home this morning and take a look. Have you put on Christ? That's the question of your life. Have you put on Christ? Because it's been clearly established that you and I are sinners. We deserve the wrath of God. We have Adam's curse upon us and we need redemption. The only way that you're going to find that redemption is through the cross of Christ. Number four, as we begin to wind down consummation, this is where we get to the part about the rest of the Bible. In verse 22, the man and the woman are driven from the garden to keep them from eating the tree of life. If they were to eat of that tree, then they would be eternally sealed as unredeemable. But God had a different plan. So he sends them out of the garden, and I don't want it to be lost on you that they are the ones that go away, not paradise. There's coming a restoration. Right now, there's a rift between God and man, but that is not the final word. There is hope and a future descendant of the woman that would bring redemption to all mankind. And so the woman and the man, they go out from the garden and they procreate and they have two sons. You're familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, right? Perhaps now we'll have redemption, except the one who was the firstborn of the woman killed his brother. So it can't be them. And then we have Seth. Eve's a little more humble when he comes on the scene. But it's still not him. Then we get to Noah. And there's a recreation of sorts, right? The global flood. Everything is reset. Then what happens? They get off the boat and Noah gets drunk. Still not him. Then we have Abraham who's been given these great promises of God that he will be a blessing to every family on the earth. And then he tries to force the fulfillment of those promises through Hagar. Not him. Then we have Moses, who really starts to resemble the Messiah as he's interceding for the nation of Israel when God wants to wipe them out. But then he throws a temper tantrum. He strikes the rock. It's not him. What about David? He's a man after God's own heart. God has promised him to establish his throne forever. He will have an heir after him. And then we see David and his son Solomon, the supposed heir, both sinning with women. guess it's not them. And then we see a long line of wicked kings, and the kingdom splits. And then it's eventually taken over by the Assyrians, who are conquered by the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, <coughs> the Greeks, and then the Romans. And finally, we arrive in Christ's day, and all that we've had so far is a few glimmers of hope over the last thousand years or so with the prophets, that there's one coming to fulfill the promises of God and set everything right. But there's been 400 years of prophetic silence now until there is cries coming from the stable out back behind an overcrowded hotel in Bethlehem. Christ, born as the seed of the woman. And he keeps God's commands perfectly to a T, the way that none of the, people who, none of the men who came before him ever could. And so he, he's a teacher, He's teaching people about the kingdom of God. He's calling the nation of Israel to repent. He's offering the promise of salvation. And the very ones that he came to save crucified him. But see, this is where the story changes because he didn't stay dead. He was vindicated in his resurrection, it says in the book of Romans. 
Well, the seed of the woman, the son of Adam, the son of Abraham from the tribe of Judah, who has come to do battle with the serpent, that's Jesus. And he did defeat Satan, death, and hell. Well, Jesus raises from the dead, 40 days go by, and he ascends to heaven to take his rightful place at the right hand of God, and he sends the Holy Spirit. The head of the serpent has been cut off. It was cut off at the cross, but it's still wriggling as serpents sometimes do when you cut their head off as the energy is flowing out of their nerves. Saints become martyred and divisions creep up in the church, and then after decades, the final apostle, John, has a vision. And he sees Christ in glory as the Lamb who was slain and who reigns victoriously. And he sees Christ who gives to all those who are united with him in his death and resurrection the right to partake of the tree of life. And so I'll let you go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. We'll read there as we close out. But I want to tell you that he is coming back. And he promised the resurrection of our body the same way he was raised when he does. And he comes to defeat all of his enemies, 1 Corinthians 15, saying that death is the last enemy which will be defeated. And so Adam and Eve brought sin into the world through the greatest act of treason ever committed. They ate the piece of fruit. As many have noted, I find it extremely fitting that the way that we celebrate the victory from the offspring of the woman is by eating and drinking from the Lord's table. Coincidence? Probably not. Their descendants inherited sin. Adam broke the world and creation was cursed. That's what happened. When we look around us and we see all this pain and suffering, we need to look backward to Genesis chapter 3 because that's the source of all of it. But don't let it be lost on us that there is hope, that God was gracious, he provided a covering, he made a promise that he fulfilled in Christ that he would redeem humanity through the woman's offspring. And though Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, they walked away with hope. And as thousands of years go by preparing for the Messiah, now 2,000 years since the Messiah ascended to heaven, we see one theme throughout the entire thing, that it all points to Jesus, who is our covering. He reigns victoriously over Satan, sin, and death. That's what happened. Now let's see where we're going. Reading from Revelation chapter 22. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. 
outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus will be with all and all God's people said. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful truth, the promise of redemption. We thank you, God, that you are working out a plan which we could not comprehend, but that you've given us the promise of hope and indeed the fulfillment of that promise in Christ. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would use this message some way, somehow this week. We love you, and we continue our time of worship now. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.